Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories of some of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. In this episode, we're speaking to Lick's co-founder, Lucas London. Lick is a premium home decorating company whose aim was to innovate decorating for the modern consumer to make it easier than ever. What were you keen to find out about Lucas? Well, he does have a background in finance and was actually working at a hedge fund during the 2008 financial crash. So that is obviously a, a moment in time that has been highlighted by lots of different films and is spoken about even still today. And it was interesting to hear about the lessons that he learned from that world. What about you? Uh, I think leading off what you just said there about um, what he learned from that experience, he talked quite a bit about the conflict that he has about wanting to grow, um, you know, wanting to have a high growth business, but equally not wanting to create um, a toxic environment. It's important to him to create a supportive environment for staff, also making sure people don't burn out. It was quite an interesting conflict. Is, is there anything else that you think business owners would learn from Lucas? I think it was interesting to hear him talk about why he actually waited a while to start a business and took his time to learn about things and, and the way that he wanted to do it. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so this is Lucas London. He's the co-founder of Lick. Enjoy. Lucas, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. So before we start asking about Lick, what were you doing before Lick and what was your experience sort of leading up to the founding of the business? Yeah, and thanks for inviting me on. Um, so I started my career in finance. I spent about five years at a hedge fund. I then left to join a kind of high growth tech startup and was there for two years. And sitting on the other side of the fence, realized I was better suited to uh, building and ops. And I was more entrepreneurial than I guess the finance role let me let me be. And have been working in tech and online businesses since then. So last company was a company I was working for called Airtasker, which was a marketplace for finding cleaners and handymen and gardeners. It was an Australian founded business. And I was the first hire outside Australia to launch the UK. And then I became VP of International. Uh, and then I started Lick. And what was it when you were younger, aside from the, the obvious draw, what was it that made you want to work at a hedge fund? Good question. Uh, I, I was really fascinated by businesses from a really early age, I think influenced by my dad and our relationship that we had. And the hedge fund was a unique opportunity to get exposure to businesses. And I thought at the time I was getting exposure to what I perceived as the front line of businesses. So, you know, FTSE 100 big businesses, when actually, in fact, realized later that it was, you know, the more disrupting and smaller tech businesses that I wasn't getting exposure to in that role that was more, that I found more exciting. But it was a unique opportunity to, to get that exposure to those management, to those businesses, learn about those businesses, learn about the macro events that impacted them. Uh, and also people at hedge funds were at the time earning a huge amount of money. And that was definitely an appeal. But I joined in 2007 at the peak of the subprime crisis. So I, I timed that poorly. Right. So were you working there through, through the crash then? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, like my first day was really sort of peak of it and worked throughout that entire period. And actually, it was fascinating that experience and how that relates to the experience now because our investment thesis at the time was looking at businesses that were investing during those challenging markets. So businesses like right. Howden Joinery, Travis Perkins, that were in, investing in taking market share, you know, they're offering their team and those businesses came out of that difficult era um incredibly strong there was a lot of learnings for what we're doing now which is really investing in our, our product range and team and taking market share and continuing to invest rather than being too aggressive on tightening what was the environment like at that place of work because i feel like anyone who has never worked either in investments or at hedge fund their view of what that environment can be like is based effectively on things like the Big Shore and Wolf of Wall Street. So what was that environment like to work in? And I suppose as a follow-up question, does that help you deal with high-pressure environments? I think my learning curve was extremely steep when I first joined that business, but it, unlike working in startups 
or businesses like Lick, it tapered off very quickly. And I think the high pressure environment was unique because of how much money was involved in the trading. But that almost normalizes over time. And it taught me a huge amount of skills that I find extremely valuable, like financial modeling, a much greater awareness on markets and macro news flow and how that might impact your business, and also what an investable public company needs to look like, or what a company that's acquired needs to look like, which is really helpful in a venture-backed business, I believe. But, you know, hedge funds are strange places because they, one hedge fund is very different from the other. It, it tends to be massively driven by the founding partner or partners. Ours was a team of 10 in a room with 10 screens and a lot of reading. Uh, so if, at the time, felt very far from that perception that you highlighted. And so how do you go from that to Airtasker? Is it a business that you discovered through your reading and, and your exercises at the hedge fund, or did you discover it outside of that environment? So I got really lucky. I joined a, it was a different tech business, but they came in to raise some funding from us. So we wouldn't invest in tech businesses, but they were meeting with the odd fund targeting the partners there. And I sat in a meeting, loved the early team, loved the product, and took a real risk and joy. And at that time, the business was a social messaging startup competing against businesses like Facebook. So it was really, in hindsight, a big bet and quite a binary one. And it needed a huge amount of investment for that business to succeed. And, and it didn't succeed. So I wasn't aware of the startup industry at the time as much as I probably should have been and then kind of fell into it with this opportunity to join this business and then kind of have never looked back and really integrated myself into that industry. Uh, so it was, a, it was a chance meeting with a team and a product that I loved. And while that business didn't succeed, the learnings that came with those few years of seeing you know, raising venture capital, some of the mistakes you make has been one of the biggest influences on me so far. And why is it that you think or that you feel that experiencing a business not reach that success didn't deter you from carrying on? Yeah, it's really interesting because in the UK versus the US, I think failures perceived very differently. And for me, I think the biggest lessons that I've had have been those those opportunities or those experiences that didn't go the way that I thought they would or hoped they would. Uh, and you can't, you almost can't start a business being too scared of failure because uh, there's constant failure every day and you have to adapt and there's such a high risk um, bet to start a business that, I don't know, I, I learned from that failure and I learned the reasons why that happened um, and learned from them and still standing on the other side of it and you know spurred me on to to work harder and succeed and i think you know as i say the, the failures come with a huge amount of learnings that have you know helped me continue to help me today do you feel like you've got a most valuable failure to date good question i have a few <laughs> 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 um I remember I didn't get, this isn't a failure, but I remember I didn't get a job in Deliveroo and I felt, I felt, um, that hit me really hard. I think uh, I got really close to a job um, in that business and didn't get it. And I remember thinking, I remember finding that very challenging. It, I was in a weird situation because I left the hedge fund and was kind of very finance driven and went into a startup and, you know, had a two years of experience at a kind of senior commercial role where I was involved in a lot of different parts of that business, but didn't have one specific skill set. So it's not like I was, you know, very experienced in operations or very experienced in marketing or very experienced in coding or, or in fact, any experience in coding. And I left there and it was quite hard to find a role afterwards. Um, and that I found very challenging. Some of the biggest, the biggest challenge was, I think, probably though at, at Lick when we raised our first pre-seed round. We gave ourselves a three months window to raise capital and start the business up. And we believed that we needed investment in order to set the business up because we really wanted to solve the customer journey. We really wanted to offer a really strong user experience online and we really wanted to show a brand that resonated with the demographic. So we didn't want to bootstrap. We wanted to invest into doing that properly. And that 
first raise was really challenging because we had loads of interest. People really liked the business and what we were doing. And, and I believe they liked Sam and I, my co-founder, but we just couldn't get anyone to, to lead. And I took the last, um, and we got really close with, with, with some funds. And I took our last investor meeting. And I remember calling Sam just before that meeting saying, this is the last one I'm doing. And that was with Alex Chesterman and Simon Franks, who both invested there and then. And then we went to a coffee shop and called the investors that we'd spoken to previously and turned what was 150K into 700K in 20 minutes because they all followed. That, the lead up to that meeting, I found really, really challenging because of how close we were getting and we weren't getting over the, over the line. So what did you and your business partner, Sam, at this time, what were you doing to kind of mitigate the feelings of whatever it might be, nervousness or trepidation around raising money? Was there anything that you were doing throughout that time to help manage that and push, continue to push you forward? I don't know if we were. I think Sam, you know, Sam was very focused on continuing to build the business forward and I was very focused on fundraising. I think that dynamic of being able to split those roles was really important. I was just razor focused like I was had a role in sales to get this investment. And um I tend to be quite spurred on by challenging times, uh, to a to a point, I think. Um and it was just head down, do the pitch, learn from the pitch and keep focusing on getting that investment. So I don't think we were doing anything in particular. It was just laser focus on, laser focus on getting it done. And how did you decide who was going to have which role? So you're obviously CEO at uh, Lick and Sam's CMO. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah. So how did you decide what your titles were going to be and what defined what you were doing uh, at Lick? So Sam worked for me at Airtasker. So he was in the UK team and he was leading growth. Uh, so we had that dynamic that was already there. He's a little bit younger, I'm a bit more experienced, and we worked really well in that role. So that kind of moved across when we started the business. Um, but most importantly, it's really where the skill set fits. So I tend to having started in finance, when I joined businesses, I tend was sort of put in the team that was raising money. So I've had that experience that suits me. I tend to be more strategic, more focused around building teams and setting visions. While Sam is extremely strong from a marketing, from a growth uh, perspective and tends to be much more detail driven and much more in the weeds. So, you know, when we were building the business, he was always focused on whether it be setting up the Facebook accounts or building out our influencer campaign while I was much more focused around building the team, setting the vision and dealing with the investors. And that's just where our skill sets were best suited. And Sam has like zero ego and is a lovely, lovely guy. So lets me have my ego and lets me be CEO and, and doesn't really, isn't really interested at all in it. I wouldn't say there's anything in the story that, that you've walked us through so far, whether it's working at the hedge fund and then working at Airtasker that makes it obvious as to why it was home decor as a niche that you both went into. So where did that come from? Where did the idea of attacking that category come from? We went into Lick with the excitement over the fact there was a massive market that was only 4% online. And for us, we saw a really interesting scenario where you have this $100 billion market, and that's sort of in interior paint in the UK, Europe, and US, and only 4% of it was online, which was lagging other sectors like easily lagging beauty and fashion, which is, I think, north of 30%, but, but definitely lagging even the home category. You could buy mattresses and furnitures, but you couldn't buy paint online or weren't buying paint online. So I thought if we could encourage online adoption, we could take market share and we could build a really big business. And it was, it was that problem that was the catalyst to get excited about building a business. And from there, actually, that excitement has grown as we've learned more about the industry, more about the customer problem, more about the innovations that can be made to solve the customer problem uh, and even all the way up to the supply chain. But it was that catalyst, that problem that we wanted to solve, that opportunity, I guess, that really drove us to uh, explore and build Lick and have grown a massive passion for, for this category, which is a fantastic category. So what was the pitch to investors then? Because what, what that says to me is you've got this clear opportunity for a business that solves this problem where, like you say, you've got really slow 
slow-moving, large incumbents who just aren't moving to e-com. Um, they're not really solving or servicing a, a certain customer who would ideally have that on e-com. Well, how does that pitch go when someone asks a question, well, what happens when the incumbents decide, you know, they see you growing rapidly and they decide to start moving all of their products over to e-com? How does that pitch go? Well, the original pitch actually included the service side, and it was meeting with Alex Chesterman right. and Simon Franks, and they said, we'd invest if you drop the service side. And they, they <laughs> and at that point, as you can imagine, uh, we agreed. And their view was that they could very easily see that, that there was a massive market and you can build a brand-led business and, and disrupt the category. But if you try and do the server side, it was too complicated and it would require too much investment and you needed to focus. And they were absolutely right. And even really going into those meetings, we were very aware that we were more excited by the building the brand than we were about the server side, but it's just how that journey came in. So we then dropped that side and focused on building a brand. And we definitely did get that question, but you know, it was our view always that execution, speed of execution, quality of execution, and team in particular was always going to ensure that we were going to stay ahead of a competition. And, and we have done. We're very far away from those early ideas of being a DTC paint company. You know, you can buy our paint, a pro range and screw fix. Um, we are the first to manufacture paint on demand at scale, fully automated. We're now rebuilding the paint category for the modern consumer and innovating on every different area of that. And that's because we hired really smart people who came with ideas and learnings and innovated and pushed the boundary. And yeah, we're, we're miles away from that early idea that we had. And that all comes down to the people. One thing that you mentioned there that I found was quite interesting was you said the focus was obviously for you to build a brand. Um, when you look at when you look at Lick's website or even any of the social channels, it's clear that it's not just you're not just selling a commodity. You're selling this. There's this whole feeling that comes with Lick and every touch point that you have with it. It feels almost like a, a lifestyle. Really, it's it's selling a certain feeling um, when you go on the website. Was that intentional? Was that like an early on clear decision that you made to build a specific brand and a certain feeling of a brand? There was intention, but it didn't develop in the way we thought. So our early idea. Our already desire was to build a community-driven brand. And we were looking at businesses like Glossier that had done fantastic jobs at building communities and felt that to build a modern brand, you had to resonate with on an individual level with people. And, you know, you look at Glossier and the community, feel like the products have really been created for them. We started that way, but actually became very aware that we were, we were building community, but our community was behaving, in our opinion, in a very different way. It was like we were hosting a dinner party and the community was talking to each other and inspiring each other and educating each other. And it, and it almost created like a bit of a decorated movement, and we call it internally sort of people-powered decorating movement, um, which is a bit cheesy. But the catalyst for that was the desire to build a community and at a time during COVID, because we launched on the, on the day of lockdown, where everyone was decorating, everyone had a huge amount of time on their hands. So it was definitely the desire. I remember very distinctly at the beginning, we, we wanted to get content from the community and we asked friends and family who were painting to send in content. And a very close friend of mine was were decorating their house and they were decorating in bold colors. They were had glasses of wine in their hand. Their dog even peed on the floor in the video. And we put that video up online, which was very different from what was very high quality, sometimes unattainable homes that mm. was online at the time. And that really resonated with our, with our audience and, and the content performed really well. And we realized that actually, if you could create a person that you relate to in a home that resonates with you doing really creative things with paint in a very accessible way, then it would drive conversion and it did and suddenly we had this depth of content and we started working with influencers who created really high quality content and have built this audience and this brand that's so predominantly UGC which is a challenge in itself because you then have to work out how you can create content yourself as a brand with clear brand distinction if you're so reliant on UGC but yeah that's kind of the journey that we went on that's that's been the sort of foundation for the brand that is today. I don't think I could think of a better day to launch an online business <laughs> in home decor than the first day of lockdown. Did you did you move the launch day at all? Did it happen to just be on the date that yeah, I lockdown mean, it, happened? It, it was, was just, it? it happened to be on the date. I think 23rd of, of March, it, we, launched, we went live when lockdown was announced. And we sent an email to investors saying... 
that, you know, at the time we thought it was a disaster because no one had any visibility what was mm. going on. And we, um, we said, you know, we were freezing all marketing spend. And we got exposure to it quite early because we at the time, and we've, we've localized our supply chain, but at the time we had to get products, some product from China, from Asia, and our factories just wouldn't respond to us and they just locked down. I remember calling dad saying, something's not right here. This is because when you're dealing with some of the Chinese factories, they're so responsive and it just overnight change. And we knew something was coming, but we were just, we were just going as fast as we can to launch as quick as we could. And that's when the day fell. But obviously within a very short time, period of time, we realized that a lot of our competitors who were in brick and mortar had closed their doors. Everyone wanted to decorate. It was a phenomenal time to build a audience and community and brand and demand. And we were very lucky for that. Uh, it was very hard time to build a business and a supply chain. And we were unable to scale during that time. And, you know, in our first year, we were sort of 60% out of stock and we couldn't fulfill so much of the demand that was coming through. But it was very positive. And it was a great time also to keep people busy at home and distracted from obviously the challenges that were going on. Uh, so, yeah, definitely shifted now. Um, so we're getting, it's, it's a very extreme two and a half years to build a business. We're seeing a lot of different market dynamics at play. But we were yeah, very lucky with the, with the day. Did you feel any kind of pressure to build? I can imagine that must have been a very frustrating environment, knowing that the demand is probably as high as it will ever be, given that people have nothing to do but spend time looking at any problem areas in their house, whilst you also can't build a supply chain that can feed the demand quickly enough. Yeah, it was really, it was very challenging, very frustrating. And, and we were seeing paint, we were seeing half empty tins on Facebook Marketplace being sold. So it was, it was really frustrating. It was a really strange time. And it was, it was, there's some positives around it because it meant we looked at our supply chain much earlier and it innovated and built a team in order to innovate in order to how we manufactured paint on demand, which, you know, has, has revolutionized our business and it allowed us to scale um, with really positive unit economics and little stock. So, the long-term benefits are great. Following on from that, you launched Lick on the first day of lockdown, and there was a lot of different dynamics at play, but I imagine despite the um, sort of supply chain issues, a good period of growth. Is that correct? Yeah, we did. We did our first full year, we did five and a half million pounds. So how's that, how's that shifted post-COVID? How's the market changed as well be, for, for you and your experience with the business? Because obviously you started at a point where where those big incumbents didn't have really a presence in, in e-com you were the realistically the the main presence providing that service in a time where home decoration is um everyone's trying to do it like you said people were selling half used tins of paint how does that look now how has that changed since since covid started to well really has sort of dissipated yeah i think it's re- reversed in in quite an extreme way because you have so for for us uniquely historically have been a diy interior paint brand so summer tends to be a weaker period for us we have an exterior range now and launching a much more improved deeper exterior range in march next year but so you have a tough period in summer and then we had a really hot summer and then we had post lockdown which meant people were out experiencing life as they should have been having been locked down for two and a half years so you know diy was no longer a priority and then that's compounded by lower consumer confidence uh given inflation and you know everything that we know is happening right now so definitely a really challenging time to build the business you know we're still growing and taking market share because the market is off but it's definitely a much more challenging time to to build the business and are those incumbents trying to catch up now yeah absolutely i think they're adopt they're adopted online quicker and you know the way they're approaching social and and the way they're approaching content creation they're definitely changing their behavior. I think we're very much moving from what was, as I say, a DTC paint brand to taking a multi-channel approach. I think, you know, the challenge with focusing on encouraging online adoption and building the business that way is you're restricted by the speed of online adoption and the size of that online market. So 
you know, it, it made sense for us to then start looking at new channels. And we launched our own store in Battersea on Northcote Road uh, in the last sort of month and a half. And we created a pro product range that launched as an exclusive color range in Screwfix sort of seven weeks ago. So have moved very quickly into wholesale. We bought a eco tool company uh, and rebranded that and that's going into stores. So suddenly our business has expanded from being, you know, an e-com play to, you know, much more mature multi-channel business, which is, which probably because of the market dynamics has happened much quicker, but it means we, you know, we're more excited than ever about the business we're creating. You mentioned that a lot of the uh, a lot of the wins that you've had in in recent times. You said you brought in a, a team of talented people and incentivized them in the right way, and they've come with these great ideas to, to to expand the business. Do you have any principles or things that you stick by to one attracting a really strong team, and then two consistently incentivizing them towards either a certain goal or how how do you get them to do great things? So I think first is you know encouraging the best people you can to to join your business through the right interview process and we're very like most um focused on challenges uh we're very keen to create a opportunity for people to showcase their skill set over just a traditional interview and we're quite broad with the roles that we've been hiring you know not not pigeonhole to certain roles because i've found a lot of the time you bring someone in you go and interview for one role and you actually hire for another given the learnings that you have during the interview process and then it's all about incentivizing and encouraging people to, to stay with you and you know we're remote first we have flexible working we have a very sort of unlimited holiday policy uh, we have healthcare. everyone in the business has equity uh, we hired a very talented a chief people officer very very early on who built super awesome was a co-founder of super awesome was head of talent seed camp so really prioritize people from day one it's all about for us empowering those people to make decisions, you know, putting in OKR structures so that they can sort of own their own areas and have autonomy over those areas. But it's challenging because, you know, business is growing. Like we have changes so dramatically and the requirements change. So that builds its, uh, you know, creates its own problem. The business and team we were building two years ago or a year and a half ago is so different from what we're trying to build now, you know, being going from e-com to wholesale alone is a massive shift. Where did you learn that? Because from, well, from our experience, definitely, definitely my experience, our business has changed a lot over the past couple of years. And I think more so in recent times because of the talent that we brought into the business and the people that have been here that have developed in their, in their own rights. But it's a big learning curve to allow to hand over that responsibility and also structuring a team, the right structure and the right reporting, reporting lines, what people are looking after, things like that. Tell me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't sound like um, sort of working in finance is, is the place that you might have learned that. How have you managed to develop those skills and do it so well? No, I think working in finance, yeah, wasn't the place. I think working in high-growth startups and, you know, a few of those and getting exposure through, you know, some investing as well has definitely helped. But for me, it's hiring senior leaders and giving them autonomy. And, you know, we've hired some really talented people in our C-suite now. We have, you know, Simon, who was head of engineering at Arcadia Group, Marina, who was built super awesome, as I say, and was head of talent seed camp, our COO, Michael, was VP of Sean Williams and built consumer paints in Valspar for Europe. You know, these are people that are have come in, have a huge amount of experience and knowledge in their categories, and giving them autonomy and ownership has been key. I think I can build a good team and give that team autonomy and and create a vision. But you know, in terms of running the business, it's definitely them. And it doesn't have to be necessarily strictly throughout Lick's lifetime, but Throughout your lifetime, do you have any either very memorable or defining moments in your life that felt like if it hadn't have happened, you wouldn't be where you are today? Yeah, I, I d- definitely. I think my biggest, the biggest moment I've ever been was I uh, was losing my best friend when I was eighteen. Uh, that was a that was a something I went through in my life that is you know, bigger in emotion and experience than anything else I've ever experienced, and I change very dramatically after after that but it's been yeah lots of experiences in businesses not going the right way or funding rounds not going the right way um 
tending to be challenging scenarios that have been the biggest learnings. Sort of, I said to you before, sort of failures that have been where I've learned the most, I think, versus successes. Can I ask, you mentioned that you changed very dramatically after, uh, after your friend passed away. What, what, were, what were the changes that you made after that event? I think I, I think I learned to be more aware of my emotions, you know, more empathetic. Uh, I learned more about myself during that time. I don't even know, to be honest, to some degree, it was such just an ex- severe, extreme experience that many people go through that I hadn't gone through before because I was grew up in a bit of a bubble. You know, I had a wonderful childhood. You know, I, I went to a great school. I had a very lucky upbringing. And then, you know, that all kind of fell apart at that time in my life and became very aware of, you know, how things can change so quickly. So sometimes it's quite hard to understand what the learnings are from it, but it was just a big experience to go through um, that sort of changed my course for sure. Yeah. I think in those moments of, um, or traumatic moments, and they're obviously on a scale for lots of different people, they definitely make you more aware of how important it is to have a supportive environment around you. Because I think the people that go through their whole lives without, experience anything like that can feel like they're almost like indestructible invincible yeah invincible yeah and i think maybe that because you worked in a hedge fund in the past and i'm sure that at the hedge fund your hours aren't necessarily fixed where and maybe it's not as as supportive of an environment if you're like feeling a little bit down or a little bit anxious one day i don't imagine it would be the most supportive environment but you've mentioned that at Lick, you're very against that kind of culture and you want to offer support around things like mental health if someone's going through something. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you promote that at Lick? Yeah, and, and, and it's really challenging because on one side, you're building a high growth business and you're doing a lot. And, you know, we don't succeed in doing, in, you know, prioritizing working in the right way. I'm sure I know of people in the business, the majority of people are working way too hard, more than they should, and because of the dynamics of the fast-paced environment we're in. And you have, you know, by its nature, hiring people that are highly motivated, really keen to succeed, have equity and, and want to build. And so it's very challenging. And it was even more challenging in COVID because, you know, we were all building a business and extremely excited by the demand we were creating, the speed of the business we were growing, but also it felt like the world was completely falling apart around you and people were going through their own challenges. I had pretty high health anxiety during that process and you were hidden behind the screen. So it's not like someone was coming to work and they looked like they were a bit quiet or, or sad and you can ask them how they're doing. You weren't able to do that. So really early doors, we made a big focus you know, led by Marina, our chief people officer, to, you know, talk publicly about, in the business, talk publicly about mental health challenges people are going through, you know, doing our best to provide the support, trying to encourage the right way of working. I don't think we've succeeded. I think we've done some really strong work, but it's, it's almost two opposing things, almost building a startup and then having a healthy way of, of working. Um, and I think Marina, our chief people officer, had her own challenge experience building previous businesses where she definitely was on the wrong side of, of work in terms of how hard she was working. And, you know, one of her appeals of joining Lick was the desire to do it in, in the right way. So, you know, it, it has been a focus and we're, you know, Sam and I are really passionate about that. And I think, you know, going back to that point about, you know, the struggle, the challenges I had when I was younger and in my loss, that's definitely been a big driver because I've suddenly become so much more aware of my own mental health, you know, the anxiety that I suffered afterwards and, you know, continue to find challenge with. And we also have, I think we're sort of a 75, 80% female team. So, you know, much more people are in the business, I think, much more open about this as a subject. So it's definitely a passion for ours, of ours in the business for sure. Yeah, I think it's this is a, a an ongoing conversation that I see online as well about how different workplaces are combating this or at least putting things in place to make sure that it is a, a supportive environment, structured environment. I think there's there's a there's a balance in my opinion that needs to be done where there's you can either go one extreme or the other, and the sweet spot is always somewhere in the middle. I think we've all worked in places where you know it's the norm that you're doing twelve, fourteen hour days, for example. 
the classic saying of if you don't come in on Saturday, don't bother showing up on Sunday sort of thing. But um, the the opposite is also quite damaging. Like you say, if you're trying to build an amazing business, there have been points and there will be points in the future where we've done long stints at work. You know, sometimes they happen. I think it, what about what it's about realising is that that's not the norm <laughs> and that there are times for that and there's time for rest and there's time for balance. Because I remember having a moment where our culture and the way that we manage it is 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 always ongoing. It's something that evolves and changes with the demands of the business. I remember thinking, you know, I, I can't really preach that you should, you know, finish bang on the dot all the time as I'm writing this email about what this means at half nine at night. That is completely contradictory. It can't be one rule for me and one rule for everyone else. And, and the same goes um, the other way as well. I think it needs to be a balance of understanding that, that it's not the norm to to work all those hours all the time and it is okay to find balance and take breaks and take headspace and i also think you know it, it sounds like you're doing an incredible job over there i don't think it's something that can be achieved either um you know you say you, there's more that you can do but there's probably more that all of us can do all the time and it sounds like you're doing a good job over there but anyway i think you have to pay for your if you overwork you have to pay for it so if you decide to work the weekend yeah, you're gonna have to have true. that weekend at some point and you end up having having to take a day off on Wednesday and Thursday. You know, if you work really hard for 10 years, you have to pay and that might be an extreme, a mental breakdown or a burnout. And I think people differ. I personally am limited to the amount of work. Like I'm very good at intense periods of work, but then I, you know, I'm not very good at working late or working for really long periods of time. So I have this sort of very severe diminishing returns on the amount of time I work, I think you can achieve a huge amount in a very focused, hardworking nine to five day. Mm. Some people, you know, I have friends of mine, you know, that might work in corporate finance that have the ability to work till 12 a night. And I personally just don't. And I, I think, you know, I've done it. I'm, I've definitely overworked in this, the last two and a half years, but I think we've also built a business by working in a better way and having a weekends and having the evening to yourself and actually in the last six nine months I've become completely obsessed with golf as I think lots of people in my age seem to do and have even you know we'll go and play uh, two hours on a Wednesday morning before work and have found that it has had a massively positive impact on my mental health and my output at work because I'm much more focused and much more clear and rested. And I think actually you can work much smarter. It's just it's not it's not time put in. Yeah, I think I think a lot of places have that feeling of. I mean, it, it's definitely the case where it feels like for maybe three of the eight hour days, most people are just sort of their brain is our, our brains crave a break so much anyway that you just end up kind of becoming distracted by something else and then you find yourself you've actually done realistically five hours of work and then almost wasted two or three that could have been spent doing something more intentional like playing golf for example on the Wednesday and instead it's just being sort of frittered away but my question would be for any founders that are listening or people that are growing businesses and and that feel the intensity of knowing that they've got either a deadline or they've they they want to meet a certain date and they want everyone else to understand how important that is what is your sell to them to kind of give people that time and the space that they need why do you feel like that's a net positive versus just working them to the to the bone basically i think building a business takes a really long time i think there's i think people have this some people have a view that you can you know build a business and sell it in three years and i think you know I think the average business takes seven to 10 or more years to build um, at sort of at minimum, not on average. And it's a, that's a long journey. And if you work, you know, too hard, you won't be there at the end and you want to keep your team incentivized and working the best they can for as long as possible and hopefully do the whole journey with you. And that requires, you know, a well-rested team, uh, there's definitely peaks and troughs. So I think I personally find that there are times where work gets very extreme and that's okay if you then have a quieter period of time where you can rebuild. I think there's so much reading and data points now on whether it's a four-day week or unlimited holidays or that improves output. Uh, so I think I think there's so much awareness now of of just working all hours of the day is not really how you get the best output. Absolutely. And and being a founder can be very 
high emotion. Well, it, it is. It's not really even can be. It's like it just. It, I think there are just very uh, emotional moments in the the life lifetime of a founder. But what are some of the biggest emotions that you felt throughout your time in in surrounding the growth and success of Lick? As like for example. You announced your twenty-two million pound Series A in in June twenty twenty-one. I imagine that was a very high emotion period. Is there are there any others throughout the year that have, that are standout moments for you? Yeah, when we opened our first store, uh, there were definitely a couple of tears. I think it was it was really it was fantastic to see the business in physical form and being an online business. You you know, I've never even seen someone pay for a product in real life and. And seeing them engage the public, our consumers engage with our team and get supported from the team in terms of color selection, and it was was a really proud moment. Emotion in terms of emotion, I find funding rounds very intense periods. I think you know to to start a business and to build a business, and you have to really believe in your self and your idea and your business um, to a point that's almost madness. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. And you have to have that self-confidence in order to get the people around you to be part of that journey and people to invest. And it's very challenging then going on a funding round and, you know, opening up your business to people and asking them to invest and smart people saying no. And I think I have always found that a very challenging time and a very stressful time because obviously the repercussions being a venture-backed business are not raising. But then obviously the highs of closing those rounds are also fantastic. And it's interesting. I see on LinkedIn people, you know, obviously there's a popularity around bootstrapping as there should be people that manage to build businesses bootstrapped are are phenomenal. But almost a complaint of why people celebrate raising because it's not the raise, it's the it's the building the business that counts. And to a degree, I agree with them, but I don't think those people have ever raised, <laughs> raised funding because it is a huge piece of work to do to get smart investors to back your business. And it's, a, I believe, a great achievement and a really challenging thing to do. And I've been incredibly proud when we raise capital and it's always a sort of team effort. But yeah, I find those, I find the investment rounds the, the most challenging. Yeah, I think, I think a way that more people that are potentially listening to this that might be working in freelance, for example, might be the closest thing they might have is convincing someone to sign a, a long-term contract or something and then being told that, oh, that's just the beginning. But you know in your head that there's been so much that's led up to that moment. It does feel like an achievement, even just getting uh, someone to agree to work with you feels like a really big moment. So I imagine it's like that times a thousand. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's probably very similar to that. I think, you know, in the similar way, when we raise money at Lick, it was the result of not that pitch. It was a result of our careers to date and the learnings that we've had and and what we've built and and then you know getting secure capital to to then go to the next phase. It's the same, I'm sure, that people found and all the work and the skills they've collected in order to win business. It's um, it's it's tough and it's tough for both of those dynamics because actually it distracts. It does distract from the business building. So it's sort of an additional job to manage, you know, winning business um, or raising capital. So they're, yeah, they're, they're definitely hard to do. And I definitely get support with my team around me in order to making sure the business keeps running and keeps going in the right direction during those rounds. Is there a lesson that you've learned in your life, or it doesn't have to be just one, um, that you feel that you would want to pass on to someone if you were their mentor, for example, is there a key lesson that you've learned that you that you'd want to give them? Yeah, well, I, I'm glad that I wait. Personally, I'm glad that I waited before starting a business. And I I think you watch news stories of people like Zuckerberg who start businesses at 20 years old and and think that's the norm. And actually, I think the average age for starting a business is north of 40. And uh, I'm very glad that I took time to work in different businesses and a breadth of businesses whether it be finance or tech, that gave me a number of skills and learnings. And it really felt very apparent when I, when Sam and I started Lick that those learnings were really valuable. So uh, I think that not being in a rush, I mean, obviously each their own personal situation, but, you know, making sure you're going out and experiencing and learning as much as you can. Um, not being scared of failure, which is a really sort of sweeping statement um, because failure can mean so many different things. But uh, I think culturally we're scared of failure a lot in the UK. And I think um, 
I think it's where, you know, you get, as I say, where I've personally got my best learnings and, you know, looking back, they, those things that felt really tough at the time actually weren't, weren't that big a deal. And the third is probably the team. The business is just a culmination of, its, of our team and they're the most important thing in the business and empowering that team, hiring the best talent and incentivizing them, I think um, will always get you the best results. You know, we're speaking to someone who started their finance job in the financial crash of 2008, who launched Lick on the first day of COVID uh, lockdowns. Uh, you, you you mentioned at the start of the podcast, you've, you've got obviously got quite an interest in sort of you know, macro news intake and, and, and market movements. How are you preparing for what looks like is going to be an interesting 12 months? And also, if you've got any advice for the people listening, what would that be? Yeah, interesting. Twelve months is definitely definitely one way to put it. I think it's going. Yeah, I think it's going to be really challenging. I think, uh, particularly for a business like ours that's exposed to consumer, I think uh, you know consumer confidence is going to be low. You know, impacted by anticipated bills increasing, but you know what what inflation and interest rates will do to our mortgages and and how that will impact spending. You know, could be could be quite severe for us not relying on one channel that is digital and, and launching new channels in terms of wholesale and retail are really important in our strategy. You know, with wholesale, we get exposure to businesses that have much bigger audience and distribution, So, and we're not reliant on just one channel. And I think we're being much more diligent in the way we spend capital. You know, we're extending our runway, um, really focusing on those investments and initiatives that will drive the highest ROI and not doing too many things and being much tighter on our cost control and also rebudgeting frequently. And as, as you mentioned before, being really on top of macro news flow. Um, so you're trying to stay ahead of the curve as you possibly can. But I think that's a really fine balance with making sure you don't stop investing in growth. You know, as a business like ours, we're venture backed, we're high growth, we are very early in our journey and have very big ambitions. We need to make sure we continue to invest in our product, in our user journey, building our audience, taking market share to ensure we stay ahead. And I believe we will reap the rewards, you know, as the market improves on the other side. You know, I'm very aware. I'm giving advice at the start of this rather than coming out at the end of this. So um, that's just how we're building the business, but definitely helped by the fact that we have very experienced C-suite that have been in these kind of cycles before. Um, and I think if you want to build a really big business and be around for a long time, you're going to see good times, tough times, you know, different cycles. So I think if COVID's taught us anything is to kind of prepare for the unexpected, which is impossible, but just to stay very alert and be able to, make decisions and act on those decisions really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a difficult time to, to give advice on that subject, given that it, it feels like it's changing weekly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but despite that, it is always very good advice to keep an eye on all of those things. Do you have any core principles in your own life for success? Are there, is there anything that you uh, live by that you feel like contributes to, to your performance? I think it's really important that you know, to build a business, uh, to you have to be extremely passionate and focused about what you're doing. I think you need to get, I think it's good to have some understanding of the reasons and catalysts and of why you're building a business. I think, you know, have, being aware of success rate is low. And, and for me, I think I had to really like learn what was driving the business, business me wanting to be an entrepreneur. Was it because I, of my ego and I wanted to build and own a business? Uh, I think in hindsight, you know, because there are probably easier ways to earn money. I think for me, I really wanted to build and I really loved solving problems and I really wanted to be the decision maker and had worked for businesses where maybe I didn't agree with the strategy and I wanted to be sort of have my own destiny, I guess, whether that is hiring people and giving them full autonomy. But I think at the same time, so learning what's driving that desire to be an entrepreneur was a big step that I had to go through and then completely opposite making sure that it is not your entire life because for me um, family friends life outside work is more important and 
being an entrepreneur and building a business, it can really take over. Uh, you know, you can get to a point where it's the last thing you think of, you dream about it, and you the first thing you think of waking up and really being focused on focusing on that business nine to five or whatever that time is and making sure for me I'm playing golf, spending time with my friends, prioritizing being off my phone, off my laptop in the evening. So I spend time with my wife and, you know, in the future, my family. Uh, I didn't, I definitely didn't want to get to an age where I look back and not, hadn't spent any time with my kids and spend all my time on my phone. At the same time, I'm incredibly poor at doing that, but um, it's what I definitely try and do. I can literally hear my wife in the back of my head saying, you're, you're literally <laughs> always on the phone. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's the end. Perfect. I've got one final question for you. And it's something that we ask all of our guests. And it's the idea that, you know, a lot of, especially a lot of uh, founders or business people that I've met, they have a little black book of people that essentially contacts or people that they rely on or go to for advice or go to um, for certain information that they can rely upon that may be something that they're not great at, for example. Um, is there any key people in your little black book that you rely on or go to for advice? Yeah, I definitely have a few. I have um, you know, a friend of mine called Nat runs his own business and we share a lot of notes. I have a good group of startup um friends that have startups uh, that we share investors with, for example, that uh, I find really useful. Actually, I, I meet fairly frequently with Tamor, who's the founder of Papier, and um, definitely come away from that secretly scribbling notes after our meetings and find those find him really useful, specifically because he's on a similar journey, but is just a few years, a few stages uh, ahead of us. So is you know, having a lot of those learnings um, ahead of us. So he's definitely useful. And our investor network is, is, is really powerful. Um, we have, you know, founders like Richard Reed from Innocent Smoothie uh, and the Jam Jar team and Felix and Omer's, you know, Harry Briggs and Antoine from Felix, who we find, I find really, really valuable. And uh, yeah, and also my own team, for sure. My own C-suite are great to learn from and, and share knowledge between. All right, Lucas, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really, really insightful. I think the listeners can take a lot away from that. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps.